Hey guys, welcome to episode 7 of Into the Van. I am of course Mike West and I can't thank you enough for tuning in. This has been a learning curve for me, it's been an exciting thing for me to do because, you know, when you are a musician and when you're first starting out as a musician, you have to kind of find your footing and find your audience, find the best way to promote yourself, find the best people to network with and I think with the podcast it's given me a new opportunity to approach a different scene and have some real fun with it and create different promotional things so I really thank you for coming along on this journey with me and the next life record now has release dates and on July 10th Friday July 10th we're going to be releasing the single for the record and it's going to be Rock Ferry the song about my hometown it's a song that I really enjoy playing it's something that really means a lot to me so that is going to be the single we release on Friday July 10th we've got a video with it that we recorded last week in the wind and the rain we had to keep ducking in and out of the van to make sure that none of the equipment got fucked up after the single release we are going to be releasing the full record on Friday August the 7th now I have the test pressings sitting with me right now that I've listened to there's some feedback to be sent over to the pressing plant but as far as I'm concerned everything's good to go and everything's on schedule that's been really fun I've also been working with Manila PR which is a PR company that will be helping me push this album because one of the things that I didn't want to do as an independent musician which is something I think a lot of people fall into either due to like budget reasons or one reason or another is if you spend this amount of money and time on an album and then don't have a budget to promote the album and I know cynically you should be saying well if the music's good enough it'll be found and that is a argument and a point to discuss but in this day and age I think there is still a lot to say about having a PR team work for you to get the album out in front of as many people as possible we've got some really fun radio plays coming up in June which has been great and hopefully the magazine and press reviews will be coming in soon as well which is awesome and it's a really exciting and nerve-wracking time for me obviously I've been sitting on this album for two years from recording it and now we're finally releasing it and to finally have it out in the world is a really exciting and nerve-wracking time so thank you so much for coming along on this journey if you haven't pre-ordered yet you can still pre-order and I'm going to drop a teaser track for you right now <laughs> Don't do like I've done to your father's song. It's a different street money it will It's never the power, it's never the title Never the money itself Never the money itself Never the money itself And that is track six, which is Father to Son. That is going to be the first track on side B of the actual vinyl. And I'm really happy with the flow of this record, how it sounds, the mixing and the mastering of it. And I really think this is something you're going to love. So, you know, head over to my band camp and my store at mike333west.com and you can pre-order your copy there. Now, without further ado, episode seven our guests today are the Plot Hounds. More specifically, it's Noah Alexander, 
the lead singer and guitarist for the Plot Hounds and their tour manager, Pat. And Pat is a really interesting perspective to have because as the tour manager, he has this whole level of insight that we've not really tapped into yet in this podcast. And there's very few that I've heard. Again, you know, I've talked about this before where it's, you need to have the whole story, I think, to understand the music industry and how to really find your footing in it. And, you know, we'll speak to promoters and venue owners and things and tour managers are one of those unsung heroes that don't really, you know, if you haven't heard of a tour manager, they've probably done their job so well because they're the ones organizing all the logistics, the times, the scheduling, making sure everyone's where they need to be and truly just keeping everything running. And watching Pat work on the July 2019 tour was something that I really admired and respected, you know. He's such a fucking fun, friendly, caring guy who just knows what his job is. And there's something to really respect of someone who knows 100% what they're about. And, you know, completely professional, but, you know, also so approachable and so fun. And, you know, he was running the merch and making sure that all the loading times were happening and people were where they needed to be. So this is a really fun talk for, you know, getting to speak to Pat and see what his job entails, how he got into it and things. And obviously we have Noah Alexander, the lead singer of the Plowhounds. And I first met Noah online, which sounds weirder than it is, but that's how everyone meets nowadays. We were all part of this Facebook group, and I can't remember which one it was called, but um, Noah put up a playlist that he was doing. So I just was, I'd released Rusted at the time, so I sent him across a few tracks and was like, oh, what do you think of this? If you put it on a playlist, I'd be honored. And he did. And then we kind of just started getting to talk from there. And then in 2018, the Plothounds first came over to the UK. And I managed to open for them on a Manchester and Sheffield dates. And Sheffield is where I also met the amazing Fargo Railroad Company. But, you know, that was a really quick meeting. It was only two gigs. Rapid fire. But even then, the Plothounds are such nice, amazing group of guys and then in 2019 they came over for a longer tour with the awesome Blackwater Conspiracy who I toured with earlier in 2019 so it was really that was the most fun I've had in my career so far it was the Blackwater guys who are super fucking fun and friendly the plot hounds they stayed at my house when they first came we all chilled went around Liverpool and then it was literally touring across the UK including an amazing set at Ramblin' Man Fair, which I was privileged to watch from the side of the stage. So Noah has been really, not just a great friend, but also an influence of his style of songwriting. And, you know, the Plothounds do what they do so well. They've won a fuck ton of awards over in the States, rightfully so. They're such an amazing live band. They're relentlessly touring. Their new album, Damn the Wind, is fucking killer. And I really, listening back to this podcast while editing it, I would truly value this conversation that we've had because it was so insightful and such a fun talk. And I really miss these guys and I can't wait till they're back in the UK. So without further ado, Noah Alexander and Pat Adis from The Plot Hounds. Into the van we go. Welcome to Into the Van with me, Mike West. Go! So, 
the whole point of this podcast was to try and create something because I know that a lot of musicians kind of struggle and this is highlighted when touring goes off and record sales are already in the toilet. What else can you do to try and not just create things to engage with your audience and your fans and stuff, but what can you do to try and just keep on creating? Cause I know as a musician and a songwriter, that is going to play a big part in what you like do or what your drive is. And it's like, I did this podcast because I needed to do something else. And I think it's a really fun perspective because obviously I know you guys. So it gives me an opportunity to sit down and talk to you about like songwriting and things. But is there anything that you guys as the plot hounds have thought about doing as like an extra uh, bow in your arsenal or anything? You know, I think frankly, that's where we probably where we've struggled the most, you know, with Mm. this, it's, um, it, I mean, Mike, you know, it as a, as a musician, it's, you know, you make, you make your money and no one likes to talk about music as a way to make money, but, you know, to, to put things into a realistic context, um, margins are already, you know, tinier than a piece mm. of paper. And yeah. when your main source of income is touring and playing shows and you've already kind of waved the white flag on album sales and streaming revenue, which, which, can barely keep a light bulb on and you know 90% of your revenue is from in-person concert interactions and that's how you've built your band and you built your business and you've built your reputation and when that's kind of taken away you know it's like all four legs of the chair you're sitting on are are kicked under and and not that I think we're ever a group to like wallow in our own self-misery unless we're writing songs um you know it's hard it's really hard to see a way forward when you know the the only revenue that you've ever figured out how to generate um, the opportunities are even going to be smaller now. Yeah. And, um, and we, we struggled a bit with that. Mm. It's crazy, man. Like, I, yeah, I think uh, like one of our, the biggest problem for me has been like, we're, we're a full band. Mm. We're not a solo artist. It's really hard to like get um, content out there for us when it's one person. Yeah. Cause I know we want to avoid having one person be the complete star of the show every single time and with lockdown it's like we couldn't get together for a month and a half to do things so it's like it just kind of got all put on pause for mm. the most part us creating stuff mm. well, that was why i enjoyed with you guys you were doing the quarantine playlists so it was each member was like making its own plays i thought that was a really nice like touch to everything because it gave you more like styles and it gave you a bit more insight into each guy like member of the band yeah for sure that was that was fully the goal was like I mean, we all have really diverse uh, artists that we listen to. It's like, let's show people that. I mean, Kevin Kevin and I listen to a lot of the same stuff. And no one I listen to a lot of the same stuff. But there's a lot of gaps in there that I wanted to, like, cover and everything. Mm. So, with those playlists. Mm. Cool, man. And talking about, like, better days, one of the things about the internet I always love is, like, the connections I make. And that is how me and you know and met was we – I can't even remember the group we were on you started making playlists and I think I dropped one of my songs in there and you added it to a thing. And that's how we got talking. Yep. It's a, uh, I mean, the internet is a, it's a blessing, a blessing and a curse. It does wonderful things like the ability to get your music into hands of people reaching all the corners of the world. It uh, is able to connect people and build relationships like, like we have with you, Mike. And um, it it doesn't pay anything. <laughs> no, true. <laughs> that is like the biggest drawback from it all. 
yeah. And everybody's got an opinion, you know. So Yeah. Well that's the thing. I've been um just irate for the last two days. I put up a post asking because there's a, obviously a load of divides between like mainstream country like what the uk country scene is and i don't know if you guys have that same back and forth but there was a lot of complaining about the uk scene and how it doesn't accept modern artists but then it also doesn't accept older artists like there was a poll on something which triggered it and it was i can't remember who it was but it was someone versus mel haggard and mel haggard lost in the poll as like who voted for the best country artist out of the two of them and then that kind of I triggered this debate of being like, if this crowd or this scene isn't paying attention to that type of music, why are you still trying to win them over? So I asked, right. if you were going to engage with a new audience, what would you do? And all the comments I got were either cliches, which fucked me off, or it was just moaning about how the scene was already. And I don't know if you guys as like Americans in like the American country scene, which obviously has like a more weight and legitimacy as the originators of the genre if you guys have that same debate at the time for you guys yeah i think you do i think what what's happening over here in the states is you know there's commercialized top 40 call it call it pop country and um and then there's you know what i would then classify as um independent or alternative kind of country music and and you know i think it, it really is two different audiences and i think what's what's important to note is that there can be some middle ground Mm. um and just because somebody likes popular country music does not necessarily mean that they would not like you know independent or alternative country yeah exactly you know it's you know florida georgia line is a really big example you know they're probably one of the the forefronts of of pop country and and everybody will bash them and hate them and and I don't like them, you know, but, but I'll tell you what they did do. They did bring millions and millions and millions of fans who before them hated country music, mm. who then now do like country music. Now, does yeah. that mean that they're going to like the plot hounds? No, but if five of them end up liking the plot hounds, that's five more fans than, that we could have yeah. never have had before. So, you know, I, I get the angst of popular music and how it's cookie cutter and there, there's no substance and no meaning. Um, but I believe that there are fans who like that music that can then get into yeah. a Jason Isbell or BJ or the Plot Hounds or Mike West. You know, it's you can't just eat sugar and drink soda all day. You know, yeah. you might go to the snack store, but every once in a while you're going to look for something that might be better for you. And I think that is, you know, where hopefully those fans will start to gravitate and mature a little bit mm-hmm. and find you know, other forms of music. So Yeah, man. Because I've even been looking now at like how to get like, not in a creepy way, but a younger audience. So it's looking at Twitch and kind of like video game soundtracks and that type of thing, because you hear all these people like in the last Assassin's Creed trailer that just dropped, there's a Blind Willie Johnson cover, Soul of a Man on it. Mm -hmm. So if that's being used for a video game, surely the demand or the maybe interest in that type of music's there. So it just needs to be fanned a little bit and fed a bit. And that's what I'm kind of looking at now. But I just hate this defeatist attitude of fans and even people who are involved in the scene to just be like, there's no point in winning them over. You just have to keep working and working and working. And I kind of say, but if you're working against a brick wall and you aren't taking any perspective or stepping back, surely that's just going to, from a mental health perspective, that's going to bore the shit out of you and it's going to affect you in the long run. 
Yeah, I, I think I think there's I think your perspective is is right. Um, I think there is there's a little bit of both. You know, mm -hmm. I think what you don't want to do is beat your head against a brick wall going after a fan base that's just not gonna work. You know, and and that doesn't mean that those fans will not come to you. But you know, it's actually interesting. We attended a seminar by somebody who's been in the industry for a long time, not too long ago. And he kind of talked a little bit about find your audience and grow your audience. And by doing that, we'll hopefully then open the doors to fans who might be on the peripheral mm. and bring them in. You know, you know, for us, it's like there's Twitch or, or TikTok and, and Snapchat. And, you know, an independent band can literally lose their damn mind trying to provide content and market to all of those different social mm. media audiences, which also have very different engagement, you know, and, and I think it's important to, you know, time is money. And, mm. you know, where do you want to invest your time? For me, I want to invest my time in think, doing things that I love, which is music, obviously, but doing it on the right platforms that have our highest engagement. It doesn't mean we're not going to ignore or try not to engage. I just think it's important to make sure you're, you're putting your primary fan base first and yeah. how you engage them and then growing it from there, if that mm. makes sense. No, that's a really, really good point. I think it's, you have to stay true to the people who have supported you for like the longest time. Cause they're the ones that are going to be like the biggest source of just support for you guys. That's a really, yeah. really interesting point. We, we definitely have a Facebook crowd. Like mm. that is through and through our best audience of people. And I mean, and our crowd is a little bit older, so it makes sense. But um, so yeah, putting some, something into TikTok, I've wanted to, but I also feel like the return just isn't going to be yeah. fully there for us. And I think us realizing that is a really important thing too, instead of yeah, beating our head against the wall on something that isn't going to bring anything back to us. Yeah, definitely. I think I've always kind of viewed it as what would I enjoy. And I do use Twitch to like watch people and stuff. So I'm like, so I'd use that. I wouldn't use TikTok because I think I'm too old for it. So it's, and what do I put my efforts into? And I think it is, I don't even bother with Twitter anymore. That has no return for me in any way. So it's just Facebook, Instagram, and I'm going to maybe meddle with Twitch to see. And a mailing list is always the biggest thing as well. That helps me shit on. Yeah. I, th I think, I think knowing your audience is as important, if not more important than trying to break into a different demographic. Yeah. And I'm not saying ignore that demographic or think it's hopeless that you can't get those fans. I mean, we've opened up in stadiums here in the States for some of the biggest pop country acts in the world. You know, I mean, 20,000 screaming teenage, teenage girls. I don't think there's one there over the age of 18. That is not our target audience. You know, that is not our core fan base, you know, but I guarantee you, you know, we made fans that night. We yeah. made fans playing on that show. Um, and, and so it does happen and it is real, but you know, keep everything in perspective. I think yeah. that's probably the best way to look at it. Yeah. And with those like massive stadium gigs, do you see like a spike on like Facebook or anything? Do you see a return from those shows? Yeah, we do. Um, you know, I think, you know, then it goes back to the same thing. Every independent artist struggles with, um, especially when you're competing with commercialized mainstream music is, you know, you, you get these big, big val or big peaks, excuse me. But then if you can't continuously have a PR engine yeah. following them up, it's boom. And then you're freaking dropping right back down. And without the constant yeah. kind of you know press machine working with you, 
um, it's hard. And so, I, you know, I think that's another thing that we realized, you know, we used to do radio campaigns and, and push hard for radio play and do radio interviews all the freaking time. And we realized that's not, we don't have, even when we do those and they provide value, it's the long-term game of that is not where we can be sustainable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not really our music anyways. It's not our format. Um, and while there's plenty of those fans who listen to that music will become fans of us, um, it's just not where we really yeah. fit in. And I think realizing those types of things is liberating in a way because then you can really then focus on what you're doing well and and keep putting your energy, which is not limitless, right? Mm-hmm. We only have a certain yeah. amount of energy and effort, uh, you know, put it where it matters. Interesting, man. And I think this is the one of the big things I wanted to talk to you guys about was you've come over twice now to the UK. So how did you get the ball rolling on that first tour, which was, do I have a poster for it? Was that 2018? You guys came, yeah, it was 2018. You guys came over first. Yep. 2018. That was when we were over there for our first trip. You know, I think we've always, we've always been this way from pretty much day one as a band. And if you even want to go back from day one, you know, Minnesota, which is, you know, stayed up in the Northern Midwest here of the United States, uh, the music scene here is predominantly based around cover artists and cover bands. Mm. And so from day one, we made a commitment to ourselves. That's not us. And so we will travel and tour and go anywhere where people will want to listen and give us a shot with our original mm. music. You know, so from, from out of the gates, when we first started writing, it was, we'll go anywhere with beer and air conditioning and places where we can play original music. So if that's, Texas or California or Florida or, or Georgia or Indiana, you know, we're going. And so, you know, after he was being in a band and, you know, somehow we got a little bit of traction with some fans in the UK and um, we said, well, we've always said, we'll go anywhere anybody wants to hear us and yeah. knowing that they want to hear our music. And, uh, you know, so I think we just kind of made the decision. It's like probably first year over, we'll be lucky to break even, you know, and, and realize it would be an investment. Mm-hmm. And we, we've, learned a lot about you know the united kingdom and, and how fans receive music there and it's a different type uh, of fan and um is an old school or throwback kind of fan and, and frankly that's that's what we want and so in, you know instead of being passive about it we're like let's go get it mm, cool and from a logistics point pat what was it like because i know you didn't come on the 2018 one but you're here for the 2019 one so from like logistics yep. and tour managing what was it like to get all this together um, I'm not going to lie. It was the most overwhelming thing possible. Um, <laughs> for me, it's like when we tour in the United States, it's like traveling as a kid, I knew where everything was. It's mm. like, I know I, I have a general idea. It's like, I had to go and learn where things were in the UK. Um, even now, like if you're like, Hey, point out where you played shows on a map, I'm not fully sure if I could do it. <laughs> so it's like, that was a little terrifying, a little scary. And, uh, it was enough to throw me off my game for most of the tour, honestly. So, um, <laughs> but logistically, uh, it was really a group effort. I, I would not have been able to lead that charge by myself at all whatsoever. Mm. Um, so the guys being there back in 2018 definitely helped me out, uh, through all that. Mm. And obviously this year is basically canceled, but when do you guys, you reckon you'd be back over in the UK? Yeah, I mean we're 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 fully committed as a band to to going back there at least once a year. I mean, really sick one. 
yeah, I mean, we have, you know, we've, we've enjoyed every experience we've had over there. Um, I think we've got really good support over there, especially given the limited amount of times we've actually played over there. And um, I love the country, love the people. And, mm-hmm. you know, if, if I can go back there and play music every year, I'll, I consider that um, a, a pretty damn good, a pretty damn good time. Mm. Yeah. So with, cause I have no experience with this, but obviously to be a tour and band and head over to the UK and things, there's so many things that like getting gear across visas, things like that. Was that all a big struggle for you guys? Yeah. Yeah. I would say it was a struggle. That was probably the most, the most stressful part of the trip um, was landing in Heathrow both times mm. and getting through customs both times. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, once once we walked through customs, it was like, you know, the, the, the flight over there was great. Um, mm. Landing was like, okay, anxiety's kicking in. And, um, you know, um, there's a million different ways to, to go over there, especially, you know, we're very fortunate with the government relationships between the United States and the UK. And um, it's not too much of a challenge, at least from what I've heard from our, our perspective. I hear differently from, from y'all trying to get over here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's stressful. I mean, you can get, you can show up and you got all this stuff planned and all this money invested. And then, um, it can be a little bit luck of the draw, whether mm. you're going to get to get in or not. Um, and it's nerve wracking yeah. you know, for sure. But, um, I don't know. We're, we're an outlaw country man. So whatever. Well, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> like they're, uh, going like when we were leaving, I had one of the agents asking me a bunch of questions and I mean, we're going on 36 hours, no sleep at that point. So I don't even know what's coming out of my mouth. And I'm just like, don't, don't mess this up right now. Like we are about to head home. Don't screw this all up. And uh, luckily he was just like, oh, you're going home. Yep. Okay. Thanks for visiting. And that was it. And I'm like, thank God. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, like, I, I always think just cause obviously I'm a huge fan of you guys and like, I love you guys as people, but to see you guys walk out onto the rambling man stage. And just know that, like, obviously, because you had a ball like getting from the US to the UK, because you f- drove to Chicago, then you had to fly back. And then it was Wales, and then a four hour drive to Rambling Man. So just those things alone. But for you guys to walk out on that stage was so fucking cool. That will, um, you know, to let's, let's just say the music stopped today. And, um, the story of the plot hounds is the past six years. Um, I'd, I'd like to think that we got to do some pretty amazing things mm. and meet some amazing people and play in front of some amazing crowds. And I'd like to think that our music has impacted some people um, in a pretty amazing way. And, you know, one of those things that, you know, if you've got a mental highlight reel of some of the higher parts of our life as a band um, would absolutely be, rambling man stage and, and walking out on there with no sleep and you know i don't even know what time we played at or where it was it was kind of a twilight zone and just you know the adrenaline kicks in and it's this is what we were here to do boys and let's yeah. go and um you know sometimes you know i think every musician questions is what i'm doing worth it is it mm-hmm. worth the blood is it worth the sweat is it worth the tears is it worth the anxiety um the stress you know that was the moment where any ounce of self-doubt about you know, us as a group or our abilities, or are we going to connect with people in a foreign country? Um, it was gone, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we were just able to be ourselves and play our kind of music. And um, that's one I'll, I'll, I'll 
cherish for as long as I get to play music or as long as I don't. Mm-hmm. Cool, man. That that day was actually like my first full year of working with the Plot Hounds. That was the day to the year. And uh, it's just like one of those I never would have imagined. Mm-hmm. Like a year and a half before that, I was still thinking I was going to go to law school. I was still thinking like, you know, I'm going to be a lawyer when I grow up. And uh, yeah, when like halfway through that set, it all just hit me that I'm like, I never would have thought this is where I would have been. Mm. So it was, really, it was probably the coolest day of my life, honestly. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm glad you jumped onto this podcast because I wanted to do one with you anyway, because everyone knows how musicians come about because of the self-doubt and they managed to find a guitar at some point in their lives. But how did you get to become a tour manager? What was your path into this? Oh man. Um, so like through high school and everything, I was in bands and I played and I was awful. I was God awful. So I kind of, that wasn't going to be my path. Um, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get a business degree. Hopefully this all comes back around at some point I can work in the marketing side. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Mm. And, uh, ended up deciding I was going to go to law school, got into a class one day and realized that I hated everybody in it. I hated every other person that I was sitting with. I was like, I can't do three more years of this. Mm. And so, uh, in that moment, I just started looking. I was looking at internships, like being on street teams, anything possible to get back into music and uh, graduated. And there was like three or four months of just me like sitting around like, I don't know what I'm going to do with life. Luckily, uh, one day Noah was like, hey, do you want to go to Sturgis with us? And I was like, yeah, of course. And uh, <laughs> weirdest weekend ever. And uh, I don't, I don't know if you guys like ever actually hired me on. I've just never left at that point. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of ended up here. Um. So with Tom Engine, what do you think? Like, if it's, if someone wanted to be where you are, God forbid they ever ended up with a plot hounds version of something else. What would you think would be the main like characteristics or drive that they'd need to make this work and be a successful like tour manager like you are? Um, uh, I wouldn't say successful, but, uh, well, you're doing main it. Thing so is, I, I always do a success by someone actually doing the thing and it working. Um, my, my biggest thing is be able to come up with solutions quickly for things, be able to run on no sleep and be fine with being the sober person all the time. <laughs> um, those are probably the three biggest things. Mm. Like just be able to think on your feet on most situations. Um, be able to plan out. That's that's it, <laughs> really, and the rest will just come. And I'm still learning too. That's the thing. So, I think one one thing I'll I'll, I'll say of you know having having Pat, um, you know what what Pat does aside from a million different logistical things, um, from scheduling, from routing to helping with teardown, helping with setup to to driving. You know, I think what Pat really does is remove a lot of worry and angst yeah. from from me and the boys. And I, and that's, that's hard to put down on a job description mm. or on your resume. Um, but I can't, I can't really explain how much that really does for us. You know, when we're wound up so much in general and, um, and, and just stressed out over life on the road and stressed out over mm. hell, my voice is going out and we've got six more shows or are we going to get there on time? You know, the ability for, for us to really be able to relax and route or to, mm 
not stress out about where, where we got to be and have just small components of an uncontrollable lifestyle controlled um, is frankly, I think what keeps us going. Mm. Um, and, and that's, I just can't put enough value um, into that and what that does for us. So. Nice. Thanks man. <laughs> yeah. And it's all Fuck recorded up. as well. You'll be able to play this backward before you go to sleep as well. <laughs> one of those uh or no is just like pissed off at something i did hey remember that one time you said all those nice things <laughs> and obviously no with the plot hounds so it's been six years of 2014 the plot hounds are south yeah um how has the lineup changed and has like your perspective changed on songwriting and being in a band in those six years yeah that's a great question um so jeff me and jeff are are the two original original members him and i were I guess the founders, the founders of the band. How did you guys um, meet? Yep. So Jeff was, Jeff was in another band playing cover music. Um, and they wanted to make the switch to doing original music. And so we met like a true love story. We met on the internet <laughs> and, um, I, you know, I, I had gotten the itch to, to start singing and writing songs again. And, um, and we met and then, from, you know, from day one, I think I'd already written Southbound at that point by myself. Mm. I got our first rehearsal. We started going over it together and, and it really just took off. Um, I think the other guys in the band at that time had no idea how crazy I was. Um, and like once I'm committed to something, um, how hard I can probably push people and, and just go, go, go. Um, and to no fault of their own, you know, it just, it wasn't the lifestyle that they envisioned. I think they got into it as a, as a fun hobby. Mm. Um, and I got into it as a way to save my soul. And those are two yeah. very different paths. Right. And, um, and then, so from there we, we made a couple of lineup changes, you know, everybody thinks they want to be in a touring band. Everybody thinks they want to write original music, um, until you do it. And yeah. the reality is most people don't, they might think they do. Um, but after doing it for a little while, it'll, it'll beat you down pretty, pretty damn hard. And so, you know, I think that's probably the reason we've had, you know, some of the lineup changes we've had is, is it all sounds great on paper, living the rock and roll lifestyle. Um, but it ain't, you know, it's mm -hmm. hard and it's tough work and it's hard mentally. It's hard physically. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a life that looks glamorous, but it's a life that has more dark places than light places. Um, you know, but, but really what I would, what I would say now is, you know, the, the lineup that we've had, we've, we've been consistent now for God, three years now. Um, and it's the band. I mean, mm. and, and I think one thing I've always tried to do is even though I've been, Jeff and I have been the consistent ones is anytime we bring someone on board, you know, we want to make it their band as much as it has always been mine mm. or Jeff's. And, and I think that's always been important to us. You know, we've never wanted to be Noah and the so-and-sos or, or whatever, you know, I've, I've always wanted to be, in a band. And what that means is everybody's working hard towards the same goal. Everybody's contributing. Um, and it, and it truly is a team effort and not some like hired gun approach. Yeah. So, yeah. And what is, cause I always find this fascinating about bands because I was in a band a long time ago and it was me and my brother-in-law was a guitarist and we wrote like the skeleton of the songs. We took it to the band and then we collaborated on it to bring it to what it could be. Is that kind of what you guys do or do you write, the lyrics and like most of the song and then bring it to the rest of the guys or did they write some lyrics and things as well as the, yeah, the, the, that's a good question. So, um, back when we 
when Jesse used to be in our band, he would come up with some of his own lyrics. And that's the first time ever that I would sing a song that was written by some, that essentially the lyrics are written by somebody else. Um, for me, lyrics are so incredibly personal. I have to mm-hmm. write them alone. And so I would say 95, um, pretty much all of our catalog with, with the exception of a couple of the songs from Jesse. Um, it'll be me with the song, with the story, with all the lyrics. And then generally, you know, the basic melody and chord structure, you know, and then I bring it to the boys and um, they rip it to shreds and make it 20 times better, you know? Mm. So, yeah, because that drum riff in damn the wind is one of my favorite fucking riffs on any piece of music. I always enjoy listening to that. Like that, the way that builds is so fucking good. Did Tater bring that to that song? Yeah. You know, I, I don't even remember. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, like, here's a good example. Like Kevin, our bass player has written guitar riffs and songs. Mm. Like, so we, we, we really get so cross collaborative when we're in there. Like I've written, I wouldn't say I've written drum riffs, but I've given direction of like, that needs to sound like that or switch mm. up the beat or the emphasis on what or whatever, you know, people have given me, you know, try singing this melody as opposed to, to this melody, you know? So it's like everybody, um, everybody just throws out the ideas and we, we are, everybody's greenlit to try different mm. things now, uh, except for lyrics. I won't change lyrics. <laughs> well, that's fair enough, man. I just recently watched, there's a Slipknot documentary on YouTube because they did made a veil in London or wherever it is in the UK. And um, yeah. they, do a, they did a set, but it was interspliced with footage from the band and the clown, like Sean, he talks about how he's honored that Corey gives them the, his lyrics. So then they don't change anything. They don't touch anything. There is that authenticity and person, like personality and like protectiveness on those type of things that you can't really fuck with. Right. Yeah. I think lyrics are, are tough. You know, even when, you know, even when Je- when Jesse had songs that were pr- pretty much fully written with the lyrics, I would never in a million words, in a million ways, you know, think about changing a verse. Yeah. You know, that that's his story. Um, that's how I view lyrics as somebody's uh, a story from them. Mm. And, and, it, and it's written in full. Now mm. the, the flip side of that, to me, a song, it's, it's two parts. It's lyrics tell half the story and then the music composition solidifies that story. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's where, to me, that's really where the band brings the songs to life. You know, without that, even with, you know, me just playing four or five chords over a bunch of lyrics I wrote, it's not, it's not a song yet. You know, it's mm-hmm. especially not a Plothound song. It's not that until everybody has, has written their own version of it and we've merged them all together, you know, so. Mm-hmm. And how long did Damn the Wind, the album, take to write as a creative thing? Obviously, with all the shit that happened with Pledge Music and everything, that obviously added on delays and all that fun shit that happened. But from the actual creative perspective, how long did that record take to write? You know, we, I'd say about, about a year, and that was the longest. So the gap between Lost Summer Day and Damn the Wind was the longest we've gone between recording and mm-hmm. the history of the band. We actually had two records not to be named that are no longer on the internet. <laughs> Thank God. Um, you know, but we, we were putting out a, at least an EP or a record like every six to eight months when we first started. Really? And, and just rushing, rushing for content and, was, and just kind of running ourselves ragged. And we, and the, the, the plus side of that was we did a lot of writing and we got a lot of songs out there. The downside of that was a lot of them sucked and the production was horrible 
and they were god awful and we were young and didn't know any better um and so when you know we got through damp we got through lost summer day and that was when we kind of made one of our bigger kind of lineup changes and i felt it was important to to cut a new record with the new band mm. um and let them put their stamp on it and make it be their band and that was that record and then from there it was we're waiting on this next one and we had some songs written but there was never a rush um to feel like we were up against the clock and we had to go cut in the studio and we really took our time we spent an entire summer touring and playing those songs out live before we ever cut them um which is something we had never done before we had never mm. toured out on on new material that wasn't released you know we'd leak a song or two and, and play it out and test it out but i mean we really had about 20 songs written and like let's go tour on them all let's go play them all in coordination with our you know rest of our catalog and see what's working, see what's not. And I think that really did a lot of good things for us. It, it gave us, it gave the, it gave us time for the songs to breathe, for them mm. to evolve. Um, it, it, it just gave us better perspective, you know, cause there'd be so many times where we'd record a song that we loved how it went six months later, we're playing it live in an entirely different way and being like, mm. damn it. Well, I wish we could have recorded it this way. It's so much better now. Um, so we wanted to, be patient, which is hard for musicians to be, and um, and just kind of let the songs develop and build on their own, and and um, I think it worked. You know, I'm, mm. I'm incredibly proud of, of that record, and and uh, I love every song on there, and love how it came out. So yeah, that's a good man. I think that's a really important thing because I did that kind of for the next life. I recorded all the vocals in January of 2018, and then spent like the next year and a bit touring it and playing it because I just couldn't get it finished. I had to wait for other like musicians and stuff to play on it. So by the time yep. it got to recording like the fiddle and the pedal steel, I could sing the songs better than I could when I first recorded it. So I just had to wipe every single um, vocal track. And even then I did the vocal takes, showed you guys on tour, and then you pointed out a few things. So I went back and then redid vocal lines for other things. And it's a constantly evolving process that if you don't cut off at some point, you can just keep. Yeah. spinning for the next five years yeah i mean a record's never really done no ever no yeah. i was saying to my mate uh, john in the last podcast i kind of see everything you can't achieve perfection so you just have to kind of achieve the best you can do at that moment in time and move yeah. on and the next one will be the best one you can do in that moment in time based on what you previously did spot on man with touring in the states you've got your own tour bus and things is there any difficulties from traveling around in the states or is it all like the different types of venues and things what are the biggest challenges as a touring band in the u.s yeah I'll, I'll answer then i'm sure pat's got another answer to that too i think for us is you know the united states is really like 50 different countries yeah and you know it's not like not like the border restrictions um but a, every state has its own different culture and its own different identity um and it's also a lot of driving yeah you know i mean so i think that our biggest challenge is if we're trying to especially in the midwest where things are a lot more spread out in the upper midwest than they are like in the south or on the mm. east coast or the west coast you know for us to get going you know it's like four to five hours in between every tour stop getting out of the midwest you know when mm. bands down south like in tennessee and georgia you know they, they can hit major cities with big enough fan bases and venues and only have to drive an hour and a half you know, mm. So I think for us, the wear and tear of, man, uh, going on a week or two week trip, and we're putting on 4,000, 5,000 miles, 
that gets at you a little yeah. bit, you know, and, and then just, just how different, you know, every, every state really is. I mean, there's, there's American cliches that are tossed around and 95% of them are probably true. Mm. Um, but, you know, each state kind of has its own, own uniqueness to it. And, you know, not, not probably not very different than, you know, Northern England, Southern England, yeah. you know, Wales, um, Northern Ireland, Ireland, of course, Scotland. I mean, there's different aspects of culture that I think you always have to be aware of um, where you're traveling. You know, I'll just say playing in Georgia, that's a whole lot different than playing in Minnesota, mm. you know, and so just constantly understanding, you know, where you're at and adjusting yourself a little bit, mm. not changing yourself, I'm sure it's the matter, but just adjusting your, your etiquette and yeah. how you behave, you know, matters a lot. So. Mm. No, that, that was my big one too, is like, being in the Midwest, I'm not saying it's a disadvantage exactly, but um, it does make it's it harder when <laughs> it, it it makes it harder because yeah, we have. I mean, our next biggest cities are sorry, but uh, I mean Iowa City and Des Moines are still six hours away. Chicago is a long drive, so like to get to a big city that has mm. a place where we might be able to really succeed, it takes a lot of travel time. Yeah. And, uh, and even then it's like, you show up and you're like, well, we don't know how well we're going to do there. Yeah. It's probably not going to be as well as we want to. Um, so that's, that's definitely, I think our biggest challenge. I mean, you have, you have artists that can survive purely just touring Texas. That's mm. it. But there's so many places where like our style of music goes over well down there and up here it's, it's sparse. Yeah. It's, uh, there, there's a lot of, yeah, it's a lot of travel time. I think that's one of the big things. And if you pardon the point, like your drive is what defines you guys because you are a really hard working tour and band. And I think that lends itself. So when someone, like if you drive six hours to a gig, people know that you clearly give a fucking shit about that. And I think that's kind of lost for a lot of UK bands and even fans where people won't travel like longer than 40 minutes to get to a gig when you know that in America or in Europe, people are driving six, seven hours just to play a show. And some people yeah. in the UK won't even cross like the Mersey to go to a gig. Yeah. I mean, even, even in Minnesota alone, I mean, from playing in Southern Minnesota to going up to Northern Minnesota, which is you know on the border of Canada, you know, that's nine, 10 hours <laughs> just in this state alone. Yeah. America's so, so fucking big. <laughs> yeah. It's a weird, weird place, man. <laughs> Like that's there, there was a, there was one night we went nine hours. Well, it should have been nine hours. It ended up being way longer, but from St. Louis, Missouri to Atlanta, Georgia overnight. And that was, I mean, the longest drive ever. I was delusional by the time I like pulled over to fall asleep. And then it's like, we got halfway there and we still had to drive more and then play a show. So it's like that definitely that wears on you pretty hard, honestly, it's just the drive time. And I think people forget that even if you're like, even if you're not driving, just sitting, it yeah. sounds weird, but just sitting in a car or a vehicle that long, just fucking takes the life out of you, mm. you know? And, and so it's, that's kind of one of the biggest challenges we have is like, okay, road time. And then, and then it's show time. And it's like, you got to get up and go and yeah. find, find every little bit you got inside of you. And, you know, we're not a band that can purely rely on individual talents, you know, so everybody has to be 
kicking ass from an energy perspective and then playing perspective. You know, we don't, mm. we don't have a whole lot to fall back on, you know, so it, it's a grind for sure. But it, mm. I mean, it's what we got to do and what we were committed to doing. Yeah. Know, so like, that's such a good mindset and that's such a good like thing. Cause it's like America and Australia, I think, cause Australia is fucking huge is it's almost incomprehensible until you've driven it, which is what your guys perspective is where people think, that like east coast to west coast is a day but how long is i have no fucking america like idea about american geography like, i don't even straight I, I don't through, even, probably 25 hours something like that straight like no stops that's right i think we talked once no and we were talking about the, like the mississippi river because i always i've always wanted to go to there and that's three times longer than the uk i think mm-hmm. <laughs> that's so fucking big <laughs> Like now, I don't think. Yeah, I don't even think you knew it started in Minnesota. No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I didn't expect you to know that. I mean, it's not like I could fucking point out where the Mersey was, and until I, you know, I watched Muscle Show's documentary and heard Bono talking about the Mersey sound. <laughs> yeah, but that drive, I think, is so key to a lot of people. I've been. Have you seen the Michael Jordan documentary on Netflix at the moment? No, I need to watch it though. Oh, it's I've so good. I think I'm five episodes I, in at the moment. I, I grew up a Pistons fan, so it's kind of like I knew they were going to get thrown under the bus pretty hard. Yeah, in the they do not get favorably. I, I was like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm good really? for now. I'll watch it eventually, but um, I just knew they weren't going to show us in a positive light. No, that's the interesting thing because obviously I've, like, as a surprise, I'm from England, so I've not really known anything about basketball in any way, shape, or form, but even as a kid, I knew who Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls were. And that was through like Space Jam and then it was coming off the back of the Olympics and things. So this documentary has been like an eye-opener to like the other caliber of teams because you kind of view, because it's like the Bulls, Pistons, Celtics, and all these amazing teams come through that just have this insane drive to be the best. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I just, I just did – I just looked at, a, I looked at a map. So from New York to L.A. is 3,000 miles and would take 42 hours. <laughs> Oh, I was way off. <laughs> from from the, the border of Minnesota, where it hits Canada, down to the southernmost point, pretty much Homestead, Florida, is about 2,400 miles and would take 32 hours. So 30 to 40, north to south or east to west. <laughs> That's Melman. Last year, I drove from like a northwest of England down south, got on a ferry and went up to the Netherlands, to Groningen, and I think that took less than a day with like a break and a sleep in between as well. Like that was a thing, seven hours straight driving, I think if it needed to be, but we definitely our, need- our goal when we're on, we consider like a good, a good tour stop. If we can get it with under six hours really between games. Yeah. Mm. But we That's definitely- like, we're like, feel, we're feeling good about, Oh, we only got a five, <laughs> five hour drive today. Mm. We're like, fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll definitely have to get you over to Europe next time you come guys. We've, uh, I mean, Going to the UK has been honestly one of the best experiences probably of my life. So we, we love traveling. We love bringing our music to new, new people, whether it's mm. one or 1,000 or 10,000. We don't care. You know, it's the journey is, is half the fun and you got to soak up, you know, the good moments when you can. So, yeah, definitely, man. It's such an interesting thing. So with, is there any like new music in the pipeline for you guys? Has anything been written? Is there an idea of a new record coming out in the future? Yeah. Yeah, there is. Absolutely. Um, you know, I've, I've probably got 
about five or six kind of half written songs and just haven't found, you know, just felt deflated based on everything that's going on. So just yeah. haven't finished them yet. Um, but, but they'll get finished and we will absolutely put out a new record. Um, I don't know if it'll be late 2020 or early 21, but mm. um, it'll be happening for sure. I mean, hell it's, we're halfway through 2020 already, which is just yeah, crazy. Screaming by, you know, so, but yeah, there will for sure be in a new record end of this year or, or early next year. And um, that's, that's one thing we, when we all got together, you know, I think that was, I'm so glad we did that because I kind of reignited a, you know, I think every musician's self-deprecating to a degree. So even though we didn't sound that great, I was like, man, we're not, we're not too fucking bad. You know, we can do this, you know, like yeah. we're all right. Mm. Like when we're together, we're, we're a pretty good, we're a pretty good band and I'm not trying to be confident or cocky, but you can, you can beat yourself down pretty hard. And, um, and so kind of getting that energy back and be like, yes, let's, mm. let's write some more songs. Let's get a new record. Let's, let, let's get back after it. It was, it was good for us. And so I think it won't be, it won't be long now before we're up to something. That's for sure. Cool. man. I think that's a really interesting point that you have to acknowledge you know, no one wants to be like complimenting themselves and patting themselves on the back all the time, but you need to believe in what you're doing to keep yeah. on doing what you're doing. And I think what like you've just said there is really interesting because if you aren't acknowledging how fun it is, even in like some points and that you actually enjoy what you're doing, then there's kind of no point to do it. Amen. There's a, there's a lot easier ways um, to make a living. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. No one, no one should need to struggle just to struggle. You know yeah. what I mean? So. Yeah. yeah, definitely, man. It's such a weird thing to do to be like, when you're just sitting there like, do I actually enjoy doing this? You know, and I think, you know, and I'll even, I think it's okay to, to, to say no, you don't on some days. Cause yeah. I'll tell you what, there's, there's plenty of days where I'm like, why am I doing this? I hate this. This is not how I want to spend my time, but you have to take it a day at a time and look at it in perspective of the good with the bad. Cause if you just focus on one or the other, you're doomed no matter yeah. what, if you only focus on the good times, boy, you're going to have a hard time doing anything. If you only focus on the shitty times and how much those suck, um, you're going to lose all motivation. And you know, it's, we're humans, right? We're emotional people. Um, uh, thankfully I'm, I think I'm pretty stubborn and probably too stubborn to quit. And, bunch of people probably would have guessed I would have quit a long time ago. And I just don't, I don't have an in me for better or worse, but you know, you have to, it's okay to, to, to be like, man, this is brutal. Yeah. And then the next day be like, this is why we do this. You know, that, that type of up and down is okay because that's how the music industry is. It's yeah. highs and really high highs and really low lows. You just got to be able to surround yourself with people to pull you out of it. And believe in yourself and be with people who believe in you without that we're all we're all effed you know yeah so. you gonna were you gonna say anything then path um I, there was something i was just i was just listening to like two musicians talking back and forth on a instagram live and one of the dudes was like you don't do this just because you want to yeah it's like you do it because you have to yeah so it's like yeah i, I don't think i wouldn't i mean i'm, I'm a little removed from all this just being on the managerial side, but it's like, 
I didn't do this because I wanted to. It's like I, I felt like I had to do it. Like I, there was nothing else I wanted to do in yeah. life. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I've always viewed it as that. And it's when people have been saying, because obviously I have a nine to five job as well. So I'll be defitting gigs in between that and people will be, I'll do like a gig Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and people will be like, well, aren't you tired? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, well, why are you doing this? I have never viewed it as a choice. It's always, I, like, I, if I don't do it, then I'm sat at home, which is obviously nice if I'm spending time with Siv and everything. But if I don't do it, then I'm not doing it. And why wouldn't I not do it? I've, I've kind of lately, like, especially sitting at home, it's like, I always complain that, man, I just wish, like, you know, I wish I had some downtime and I wish I was at home. And now it's like, man, I hate this so much. Mm. <laughs> I wish we were stuck in the bus for 10 hours going to the middle of nowhere. Um, uh, it's just been kind of eye-opening where it's yeah. like, I'm like re-centered now where it's like, okay, this has been enough downtime. Like, I know this is what I'm supposed to be doing because like, this is a perfect opportunity. If it wasn't, I'd be like, you know what? I'm fine, but I'm not. Like, let's, yeah. I want to get back into it as soon as possible. So. Mm. And was the last tour you guys did, it was with Drew Dixon, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. How did that come about? And then I'm really interested in how you guys plot out like that type of tour for dates in the US. Yeah. I, I, mean, I guess ahead. I'll go ahead, Pat. Um, so man, I've known Drew, of Drew for a few years now and kind of just started out as a really big fan of him. And, uh, we kind of built like a little bit of a friendship off of that. And then, uh, one day, Noah and I were sitting after, uh, they just wrapped up the set and we're sitting at the bar and I'm looking at the calendar. I'm like, dude, we got these two uh, or three open slots on the calendar in uh, February. Can we bring Drew with? Like, I think that'd be a great chance. Like, he's kind of in the same boat as us as far as like, you know, Nashville, South Carolina, Georgia. He has a really good audience and then just hasn't gotten up to the Midwest a bunch. So I uh, sent him a slightly inebriated text. I was like, dude, like, these are the days we got. Do you want to come with? And he jumped all over that. And, uh, yeah, he was, he was fully on board with it, which was pretty awesome. And we just went from there. Yeah. I think one thing that we've always prided ourselves on and not that Drew needed us to provide him an opportunity by any stretch of the matter. Um, but we have always pride ourselves on bringing music, not just ours, but other people's music to other people, to crowds, whether it's, bringing bands that we become friends with from Alabama or other artists in the Midwest who may not have an audience. Um, like we are not afraid to share our audience with people who yeah. we believe in, you know, and I, and I think it's our duty, you know, frankly, um, to do that. And, you know, I, and I'm, and I'm saddened that that's not as common. Mm. Um, yeah. even, we were fortunate when we went over to the UK, Mike, obviously with you, and then with Blackwater Conspiracy, mm. kind of took us under their wings on a shot and, and shared their audience with us. And, and we got a lot of fans that are Blackwater fans. And mm. that's, that's an attribute to them, kind of extending their version of hospitality of what we try to do, you know, for bands, you know, in, in the States. Um, we get out and do it. And if we believe in you and you're a good human and you're talented, then, man, we'll put you on any stage that we have access mm. to. And we take pride in, in doing that. And I yeah. think if, if – musicians collectively had a little bit more of that in them mm. um man i think we'd be in a better place to be totally honest definitely i think if you look at like the heyday even up until the 90s in metal when there was like pantera and skid row and stuff they all tore together there wasn't necessarily a headliner or 
it was all just sharing a bill and it was more about having the fun experience of putting on a live show and sharing an yep. audience than you know who was a headliner and who was what yeah i've never i've never gotten an understood the competitiveness between between bands no I mean, I've, this is something that has never even crossed my mind you know what we're all after the same people yeah and you know people or, or music listeners that's everybody in the world you know i'm a i'm a i'm a fan before i'm a musician you know mm. that's how i kind of view myself and um and you know i, I just think we could you know call out to musicians or any all listen to this man bring bring someone on the road with you and give them opportunities that you might have liked to have had when you were at their point in, in your career. Mm. And, um, you know, and luckily, you know, we've, we've been fortunate to have that karma, um, return to us, you know, with, mm. with Blackwater and, and a couple other bands here in the U S and we're thankful for it. You know, yeah. So it's such a good idea, man. And like, I've only been doing this for four years, but my, one of my best memories and one of my best experiences as a musician was touring with you guys last year. Because not only was where the show is great and the crowd's awesome, but it was fun to just hang out with like-minded guys. Like yeah. outside of even playing like the Islington Academy and getting to watch you guys at Rambler Man, the, my best memory from that was in Folkestone where we just stayed up till three in the morning, sharing music yeah. and just fucking chilling. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of musicians would so benefit from having experiences like that more when you tour together. I agree, man. Absolutely. I, I, I think we look at it as like it's a family thing. Like yeah. all the bands that we tour with, you're in our family now. It's not like we're we're not working against each other. I mean, hell, outside of like the guys that are immediately in Minnesota, some of my best friends are down in Alabama just because we toured with them and made such great friends with mm. them. That it's it is a family thing. I think country music is a family thing. Yeah, and uh, yeah, if everybody just kind of was more embraceive of that. I think everybody'd be a lot better off too. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot. I don't know if it's a mindset or something, but like as a fan, I don't listen. I got, I've got an Ace Freely Kiss tattoo and I've got a Johnny Cash tattoo. Doesn't mean they're the only two artists I listen to. So to think that people are going to be ride or die on one set band and not have any wiggle room is a really weird thing. And that collaboration, I don't know if it can work in other things. Well, in a live setting doing that just seems so beneficial to everything. Oh yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. That, that a uh, playlist, like I wish we'd Spotify that. So I actually had it to listen to cause that was a eclectic, uh, run of songs. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about that night the other day, actually. I was like that. Those are like the moments that I'm missing the most right now. It's just yeah. like that. Like the, the shows are great and everything, but I, I missed, just being somewhere that you know you haven't been before with five of your other best friends and just the moments that come off of that yeah it's the it's the tour stops for me i mean it's always the shows but it's you know the days we have an off day and everyone's stress is gone and we're just cutting loose or late nights on the bus you know i mean that's that's what builds the stench of character Mm. of a band (laughs) yeah because last year I spent a week and a bit touring exclusively on my own. So the only people I talked to was once I got out the van and talked to the venue and like the owner or whoever, and then the crowd. And in between that, I was driving on my own and it was good because I can enjoy my own company, but I don't think I'll ever tour exclusively on my own again, just because not having someone to share it with just lessens it. 
So even okay. I did a bit of a stint a few months later and I took Siv with me, but I'm definitely going to do another tour and bring someone else with me just to have that fun. With I don't even, like, I'm not bothered about having to like cut my set time or split a fee or anything. It's just having someone else to bounce off of that, I think is the most important thing. Right. Absolutely, man. Mm. But I think ending on this note, I'm going to let you guys go. I think I've chatted you off like an hour now. Yeah, it's the time difference is about one in the afternoon for you guys now. Uh, one, it's one forty, one forty here, oh, which cool. is what thir- thirteen forty. Excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> so I haven't eaten up too much of your afternoon or anything, but thank you so much for uh, joining me, guys. And hopefully, I'll see you in the UK for live into the van at some point. I'll have to cram you all in like that tour again. <laughs> you bet, my man. Appreciate yeah. you. Miss your face, buddy. Be yeah. good. Catch you later, man. Thank you so much, Mike. No worries. And there we go. That's episode seven of Into the Van, Into the Bag. Thank you so much for listening. If you have not listened to the plot hounds, I urge you to remedy that as soon as possible. Lost Summer Day and Damn the Wind are two fucking fine albums that are on Spotify. Obviously, with COVID and everything, if you can pick up their albums physically or send some money to the plot hounds way, it'd be massively appreciated. I really hope you enjoyed that talk. I know I did. There's so many gems that you can pick up from just talking to musicians that you wouldn't really think you would. And it can just be some minor details or a throwaway comment that can really change your perspective on these type of things. And I'm, I definitely am going to be listening to this conversation back. I had such a blast with it. And it was the first three-way Zoom podcast I had. So I edited out some silence and some confusion as to who was going to be talking. So I hope that um, it was smooth for you guys and I had a fucking blast doing all of this. Um, Until the next time, my friends, stay safe and stay healthy.